0: (laughs) Hello everyone and welcome back to the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex
1: Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's Forgecast is coming at you thanks to the radical Robert Weber Abrasives. So after the show, be sure to give Weber's.net.au a visit to stock up on all the goodies you need for your knife-making shenanigans. Yes. What have you been up to this week, Alex? Uh, Working on a new uh, pocket knife. It's been a while. Um (laughs) I had a bit of a break from making pocket knives because we had the 48-hour dagger challenge and all the prep work for that. And then I rolled straight into building Coronark. So um, I'm back on a folding knife and doing a a, a few new things. I've got Mosaic Damascus on the bolsters. Um, I'm doing Mm. uh, polished faux ivory uh, spacer, uh, domed spacer, which is something that I've seen and never tried. So doing it domed and polished is going to be an interesting challenge. I've also, um, I'm inlaying abalone into the handle scales, which, mm, I saw that. yeah, it's, um, went smooth, like uh, suspiciously smoothly. So <laughs> I've done one, I've got to do the other side. So that's the one I'm expecting all of the problems to manifest on, um, but it's using some of the Koi Baker steel, um, his uh, raindrop go my with the copper stripe. Mm-hmm. Um, got that from Nordic Edge. I, I had to try it in that primary uh, preliminary order of uh, Nordic Edge stocking Koi's steel. I, I had to jump on that bandwagon and got some, and the billet's been sitting there looking at me, and I really wanted to do something with it. So um, I'm doing something that's a little Kaz Knives-inspired um outside of my usual style um but i did kind
0: of notice that it looks really good
1: though deep sort of round bottom fullers cutting through the layers of the damascus and that sort of thing so i I really can't wait to fully polish this up and etch it um because all of the different shapes and facets and things i think are going to lend to a particularly cool knife uh and i have a um I'm, I'm hooked on those hard cases now because you remember when I did the 48-hour dagger challenge, um, I had a cu- custom hard case for it. Um, mm-hmm. I shipped it to the collector that bought it and they messaged me and they're like, that box was mangled <laughs> when I got it. It was just, it looked like they'd been playing football with it um, underwater. <laughs> and Would not be surprised. And they were terrified to open it. They opened it and the hard case was perfectly intact. And the scissor nice. dagger is still very much in the center of it, like untouched. So I'm pretty sold on those for the the higher end pieces. I have um, another one behind me ready for your buoy. Um, oh, yeah. So I've, I've, I've nice. got that in advance. <laughs> uh, Everyone's and, making their preparations. <laughs> and I have a little one um, for this pocket knife that I'm working on because this is going to be the nicest pocket knife I've ever done uh, when it's finished. Mm. So... Yeah, work on that. But it's also going to have uh, something else special with it. I'm planning on making it the center of my next online course. I've been prepping for that. um, Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a knife photography course, how to actually get decent photos of your knives um, from getting the photos in the first place all the way through to doing your own photo edits. They're all Sweet. laid out that you see people doing, um, and I'm going to be going through all of it, um, basically photographing and then doing the photo edit of this knife. So, going to finish the knife first, and then I will um, do the <laughs> film, film the course based off that knife. So, that should be interesting. Um, the young customer came and collected Coronark today. Um, they were very, mm. very excited. There were tears. Um, oh, they got to collect it in person. That's yeah, I know. Um, well, they only lived down the road, so it felt weird um, sort of like yeah, leaving yeah. the post office. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Fair um, enough. And I've also been uh, experimenting with some more <clears throat> advanced metal casting techniques um, mm. because I've got some ideas for things that I want to make, and in order to make them properly, I need to get better detail in my casting and i know how to get better detail but you know with investment and and vacuum pumps and all that sort of thing but that's a lot of expense and and time and things so i've been doing some experimentations on how i can achieve it without going to great expense um funnily enough (laughs) using um pla 3d printing um I was sort of inspired a bit by what was going on with Steve Schwartzer and Coy Baker and that sort of thing, and the response that PLA has to sort of high heats. Mm-hmm. Um, and early experimentation's going really well like, really, really well. So, awesome. Um, stay tuned for that. I want to get the process down really well, and I'll probably do a video on it because it's. Um, the results are shockingly good <laughs> <laughs> I mean when you, you can, when the metal casting still has the 3 d print layer lines in it, you know you 've yeah. gotten pretty good pretty good casting detail so and on a yeah, budget no, too good. so um, pretty excited about that and what it will mean for future projects of mine, especially since that rapier is still looming large, um, and I will be going to it hopefully soon. <laughs> uh my song of the week is um i mean i've brought up that i have a, a playlist that's just filled with songs that i can't help but dance to when i <laughs> when i hear them and if i were to make like my desert island playlist of songs that you just can't help but move to when it's on um this would have to be somewhere in the top top 5 possibly even top 3 uh and it's megan trainer dear future husband (laughs) yeah absolute bop of a song it is if if you have even the slightest inclination to get your hips swinging while you're working be be warned you will you will not be able to help your feet from moving listen to this song (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really really good yeah so what about you big fudge what have you been up to Oh, well, you know, like not as much as I'd like to be. Um,
0: I did get a couple of hammers like worked on, um, and I started making some more chisels to work on the inlay and engraving work that I gotta do. Like, one of the things that stopped me from doing the uh finishing touches on the dragon hammer and doing the inlay on the um Viking crossbeam that I'm doing is that I needed some specific chisels and I just hadn't got around to filing them up and getting them ready, so I actually spent a little bit of today doing that (laughs) and I've got like two more chisels to make before I can finish, but yeah, those will be coming soon. Um, Just uh, yeah. Fighting those demons, trying to um, get ready for the Royal show. I'm doing one day at the Royal show next next week. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like a live show. No, it's a Perth knife show display table. So basically, you know, we're just displaying a bunch of our work and advertising for the Perth knife show next year Uh, that's what I did. I did it last year for like three days of the show. Um, get a little display. You can sell things there as well, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, obviously at the moment I don't have anything to sell. So (laughs) I'm just trying to collect some of that. And I also, uh, cut up some guillotine tool dies, and, um, yeah, that's, that's basically been it realistically. Um, not, not much going on really, but, uh, I have been in contact with Bjorn from Nordic Edge, who's one of our wonderful sponsors here on the show, and Brian uh, from, <laughs> yeah, from What We've Fiddleback, <laughs> that uh, also sponsors our challenges, and they have both uh, put forward items to be put into the Townsbow Build-Off prize pool, so cool. it's going to be some pretty fecking awesome prizes <laughs> for, mm. uh, for this one.
1: Love it. Love everything about it.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I've I've had a lot of people expressing their uh, interests, so I'm really keen to see what happens. Um, And I've heard one person tell me that I should make a Facebook group. One person does not a uh, (laughs) group make, but we'll see. Um, My song of the week is a song that I actually came across a while back uh, when I was just surfing through Spotify's randomizer. And um, it's what I like to think of is like, existential crisis cabaret <laughs> <laughs> it's by an artist named honey church or one word honey church yeah um and it's called normal problems right and like do, you listen to the opening line and then the hook and you'll understand what I mean <laughs> it is actually a bop though I really love it it's it's great very um, different
1: vibe to Dear Future Husband, though.
0: <laughs> yes, very much so. Like, I mean, <laughs> you could probably dance to it, but it, because it's like a cabaret slash swing kind of style music, uh, it would be a very different dance.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although, I mean, if you're if you're keen enough, you can twerk to anything. Oh, well, that's right.
1: <laughs> that's right. Por una cabeza, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If you can't twerk to a tango, you're not trying hard enough. Uh, I mean, yeah, you just, just got up to up them skills. That's it. Oh, good heavens. So we have a bunch of emails from some handsome people. Mm. Um, yes. Or we have our inspirations of the, the week. What would you like to get into, Sam?
0: I think we did inspirations last week first. So why don't we do emails first for a change?
1: Alrighty, righty. Our first email comes from Connor, and he says, Hey, Sam and Alex, loving the show recently and super impressed with the work you both put into the 48-hour dagger challenge. Question for mm-hmm. Sam here, although I'm sure Alex has some insights too. I probably do. Uh, what kind of <laughs> adjustments would need to be made in a sword for use in HEMA? Hmm, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> would Would you want it softer than normal, Obviously, you don't want an edge on it, but where is the line of too thin? I've seen some swords where the tip is curled over. Is that the play, or is it better to just blunt the point in the profile? I'm so curious as to what you boys think of this thanks I mm, that that's one a fun. your that's knowledge a f- there, Sam.
0: Fantastic question, and, and it's right in def-
1: Sam's belly
0: <laughs> yeah, That's it. That's 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 right up my roundhouse. Um, yeah. So no, um, in Hema, softness isn't the, the thing. Like so, um, historically speaking, swords were actually quite soft, even in the like nineteen hundred, eighteen hundreds, and nineteen hundreds, because it was better to dull your edge slightly than to break the sword in half. So. Um, On average, most swords aren't actually that hard, unless you're talking about the edge of a katana, but that's why katanas have soft spines. Um, But that then leads to them bending rather than flexing. Um, So in Hema, your, your hardness is normally around like 56 to 58 Rockwell. Um, which is what you would do for a standard knife temper. If you're using the right kind of uh, alloy, obviously your alloy is very much going to decide what your final hardness is going to be and, and what your flexibility is. Most uh, sword makers, myself included, use things like SUP 9 or 5160. Uh, one of my favorite steels at the moment is ADCRV2, but getting it in stock that's large enough to do swords in is a little bit difficult. So, uh, you know, you make do with what you got. Um when it comes at you, to, like, when it comes to like how thin is too thin um the edges on most Hema blades for competition um so like in swordfish and the international Hema community i believe the minimum is two millimeters uh at the edge um don't quote me on that but that's what i've heard uh in my community um here locally we we have a, a minimum edge of of two millimeters um So that's basically what I would go on. There is a flex standard for certain forms of steel sparring, but um, uh, internationally there's no flex standard. Um, The flex standard that I go by is a six ounce weight uh, balanced on the tip. uh, When the blade is uh, suspended from a vice by the handle, it should flex laterally. um, So along the, along the flat rather than along the edges, it should, um, Bend about an inch and a uh, inch or an inch and a quarter uh, at the tip if it's um, grabbed by the tang um, with a six ounce weight, and that just means that you're going to get a, a medium, a moderate size of flex for the blades so that you're not going to kill anyone if you thrust into them. But what um, I'm hearing is that there
1: are standards depending on the region that you're in. Um,
0: yeah, and, and like you can it will very much up depend, and
1: they will tell you exactly what you need to achieve.
0: Um, like groups like the SCA, like the Society of Creative Anachronism actually have written rules on what sword blades have to be, um, for like steel rapier and cut and thrust swords. So like they have very specific, uh, design parameters. So if I'm making a blade for them, which I have made a couple of blades for SCA, um, you have to fit their design requirements and they test them themselves when they are put in. So, um, you gotta be careful for that, but in HEMA it's kind of, you know, you go by the group. Um, as far as tips go, I prefer spatula tips. So I either upset the tip to make it a little bit wider, um, or I prefer to like start with thicker stock and just leave it that thickness. Um, I like to have at least a six millimeter by about 10 millimeter or wider, uh, tip at the end of my swords. And that's just to prevent, uh, penetration when you're stabbing people um rolled tips are popular um the problem i have with rolled tips is that normally the rolled tip is thinned out before it's rolled and so it creates a break point, a weak point which means that you break it off and you've only got the blade cross section left uh and the other thing is, is that the edges of most rolled tips are basically melon ballers at the end of your sword you and i have seen scoops out of people yes i have literally seen cuts <laughs> <laughs> I've seen literally seen people take have scoops taken out of them through their gambeson um pom we- on the battlefield <laughs> <laughs> so um a lot of guys who get rolled tip swords actually end up plugging their rolled tips either by welding the pl- the the roll ho- uh, roll closed or by like putting uh, you know, some form of glue or epoxy or something like that just to prevent it from taking those scouring marks out of people um, but I don't like doing roll tips because I just don't have the setup for it and I find it less you know, effective um, button tips are really cool as well if I had a TIG welder I might do button tips which is basically to just either weld or upset I don't want to go through the process of trying to upset a nail head on the end of a sword it just seems a little bit <laughs> uh, difficult but um, yeah, welding a button, basically a 10mm a, a round uh, piece of steel on the end of your sword is one way to create a tip. Um, but then you have to worry about the edges of the button being sharp and all that kind of stuff, and it's all very wishy-washy. But yeah, it's, it's a hard line to find whether you want the sword to be softer or harder, but I prefer a slightly harder sword um because it doesn't take edge damages easily and when you have edge damage it creates serrations and serrations are really bad for not h- hurting people mm. um but you've kind of got to tiptoe that line where it's like if it's too hard it's just going to snap in a thrust uh and that's where very very strong uh testing
2: <laughs> needs to
0: happen <laughs> like you need to be testing your blades um and I, I have tested a couple of blades to destruction. I have flexed them way past what you would ever see in a combat scenario, um, purely just to see if they'd survive, and they all survived. Um, so, you know, I'm fairly confident that my blades will survive multiple repeated bendings. And that's the one thing you got to remember is that Hema blades get bent back and forth constantly as they get thrust into people and smacking into other swords and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for the question. Hopefully that answered it. I'm sorry I got kind of carried away, but swords are a thing. <laughs> they are a thing. They are a thing, and they're a big thing in my mind. Uh
1: even even the small swords. <laughs>
0: <laughs> even the small swords. Small swords are awesome.
1: Uh, next email comes from Zach, and I do want to apologize to Zach for missing this question for two weeks in a row. Um he says, Hey guys, we've got another question, and this one is more along the lines of a business slash ethics question. I live That's in the same right town. Up I live in the same town as a Forged in Fire champion, Josh Wentz, uh, from Season 8, Episode 4, and he offers a two-day knife-making course on how to forge and finish a kitchen knife. Would it be unethical of me to take his class and then go on to make knives to sell my own? I would not copy his style because I want it to be my own recognisable style, but I I couldn't help thinking that it could be a weird situation. Thanks for the help and the wonderful podcast, and I hope you guys stay safe in the shop. Also, I hope you have a speedy recovery from your wrist injury, Alex Zach. Uh, I did. Thank you, Zach. Um, Thanks, so, Zach.
0: I mean, yeah. Uh,
1: you probably hear um, me talk about Broden, uh, my friend Broden on this show. Uh, he learned to make knives from me, and he now sells knives, and he makes lovely knives. Um, I don't even think twice about it, to be honest. I, I look at his work, I admire his work. He brings it to me, he shows it to me. I, I Uh, it's it's why I was giving classes in the first place it was so that other people could learn how to do it Um, part of offering classes in anything it sort of comes with an insinuation that 1 in 10 of those people are actually going to (laughs) follow through and then continue doing that thing Um, some people will try it and find out it's not for them or just do it out of curiosity but a lot of people they study to to learn, it's no different to going to do a, like a TAFE course or a college course or something um, to learn something. You don't have your instructor from the college come over to you and be like, hey, I taught you how to do that. Why are you doing that?
2: <laughs> if I mean, you the, were
1: copying the, their exact style and doing exactly their product, that's a totally different thing. You shouldn't be copying any maker out there, no. whether you learn from them or not. You shouldn't be copying their work and selling it as your own. That's just ethically mm. wrong. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's nothing wrong with making something that's designed by someone else, as long as you ask their permission and credit them with the design in the original case.
1: There's a little but, bit wrong
0: with it. I mean, as long as you ask them, there's nothing really wrong with it.
1: There's, there's a little bit wrong with it on a moral level, simply because <laughs> you should you should be coming up with your own stuff. If you're just yeah, sure. if you settle yourself into a comfortable place doing what other people do, you'll never. Have a sense of self satisfaction and having come up with something. Oh itself. no! Like on a so on a, a regular basis, with, don't do it. But yeah, like you know, one off of pieces for that, you know. Improve yeah. yourself, challenge yourself. But sure. it sounds but like, like you're not planning on copying his style or doing his products. Just uh, learning the technique and and the how how to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's no different to doing any other course.
0: I've I've gone to classes like I, I went to Blade Symposium and had classes run by Kyle Royer. Uh, I don't think he's worried about me competing with
2: him.
1: <laughs> you know, think, th- and- think of it this way, Zach. If you wanted to sell um, like handmade flower pots, for example, let's just say you just really lo- liked the idea of doing it, you would go and do a pottery course first mm-hmm. to be able to learn how to do pots um, so that you could learn how to do it in order to do it for your business. This is no different. You've gone and done a course with somebody to learn how to do a skill. It's, you know.
0: The, the other thing to consider is the fact that, like, you you may be worried about being close to him, you know, like, physically, um, you're living in the same town. 90% of his market's going to be online. <laughs> like, he's probably not even selling just the US. He's selling overseas, all over the place. If he's not diversified past his, like, town borders, then he's not... It's his own problem. Very, yeah, he's <laughs> not a very good bladesmith, but... Um, so yeah, like your, your proximity is, is no issue. It's purely, yeah, learn from him, take the opportunity do it. I mean, I want to do classes with a number of bladesmiths here in Australia and over in the America and I won't be making their stuff, but I'll definitely be, you know, utilizing their information. Alex and I were actually talking about it just before the show.
1: Do what Broden did and befriend him. And that way you get to hang out with his, in his workshop and use all of his tools. Yeah, yeah, I'm on break you, his ball jaws and yeah, break all these tools.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm doing that thing where sabotage. I'm pointing at my eyes and then pointing at the camera. <laughs> yeah, a
0: little bit of a little bit of friendly sabotage between competitors. <laughs> yeah, that's right, right before the 48 hour. That's what you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. and i mean like the community isn't like the community isn't so large that we can't take on they can't take on another maker like (laughs) it's it's not like the the community is saturated saturated with makers and there's no business for us yeah you you find your own thing do it you'll be fine
1: yeah don't stress that um, our next email comes from Jay, and he says, "Hi guys, thank you very much for the incredibly positive role you play in our maker community and my week." Question one, Sam. Oh, it's not mm. a question, really. He, he <laughs> says, here's a, "Here's a vote for your Facebook group. Great way to yeah, organize." Yeah, I think that's the, the one share. that I saw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two. What's the backstory on the Forgecast intro and outro? Uh, it's the theme from or a. a re-recording by Nils, our former co-host, uh, of the theme of a show uh, called Rota, I think. Rota, yeah. Rota like, so Raks, Raksivir or something? I can't something like the, that. Neither of us yeah. can speak Swedish. Apparently, um, yeah, it was it's, a really big deal back in the early 90s. Uh, the it, was a cowboy, it was a cowboy TV show. And then it was so popular, they ended up making a movie about it, I think, and the... Um, Intro theme for the Forgecast is a re-recording by Nils of the TV show's theme, I think, and the outro is the opening song from the film, I believe. Yeah, but it's all yep. in Swedish, so i don't um, I don't really know whether or not how accurate that is. But apparently, it was such a cultural big deal in Sweden that there's even like um, proper choir concert performances of this song done <laughs> as a matter of like national pride, people will learn to perform this song. Uh because yeah. this it's sort of like, you know, Australians with Crocodile Dundee. It's like <laughs> <laughs> That's not a knife. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's it's um apparently like a, a really big deal in Sweden. But um but yeah, it was
0: entirely Niels's idea, and he he had all the recording equipment and stuff like that to do it, and he did it, and we loved it. So
1: yeah, yeah and we've used it. it ever since. So we we thought Synonymous we we have us. thought about re-recording it with Sam and I doing it, but to be honest, Niels did such a perfect job that it just would feel wrong to remove it. Really would. So it's his um, legacy to the Forgecast. It is yeah, and I I still love hearing it. It's a really good, really beautiful recording of it. Uh, And I love the outro song, the the cowboy song. I I even Mm -hmm. will catch myself singing that to myself while I work some (laughs) days. Yep. Um, And Jay's third piece, he says, I've been fascinated and obsessed with the work of Wolfgang Lechner but can't Mm -hmm. find any resources on how he achieves such beautiful results with hand tools. What sort of techniques do you guys think he does to achieve such ethereal, angelic designs? Uh, And let's not forget... Before we move on to talk about Wolfgang's amazing work, his um, very talented daughter, Elizabeth Lurchner, who does Mm. equally as exquisite work with hand tools. I
0: mean, like, as far as his designs go, that's just pure artistry. Like, that's his ability to, like, how how does Monet, what (laughs) is seen? You know, it's like. Exactly, yeah. He can corporealize, (laughs) you know, like anything that he wants to put into reality um but like when it comes to getting fine finishes in hand tools it's no different to using a grinder it's just going through various grits or like you know aggressiveness of uh, abrasive when there's, it comes to like finishing out
1: like small areas i think he uses guess fine stones there's a brilliant movie um called magicians and it's got um what's his name the british comedian's have you seen magicians? The magicians. guy that's always on, um, oh, he's always on. Uh, Would I lie to you? and that, uh, he's one of the co-hosts of Would I Lie to You, the British comedy show. Anyway, it's a it's a movie mm. about two magicians that were a partnership working together, and then they have a, a falling out and everything. But at the start of the movie. These two magicians are watching a really old magician that's been doing it for like sixty years up on stage performing <laughs> his most famous trick, and his most famous trick is where he's got a cigarette in his mouth he lights the cigarette and he's smoking the cigarette and all of a sudden he flicks um the cigarette and it's it disappears completely and everybody in the audience goes, "Oh wow, that's amazing." And these two magicians stand up for the side and go, you know, it's not actually really a trick. He's just a sick fuck that swallows a lit cigarette. <laughs> and yep. that is what Wolfgang does, basically. <laughs> what he does would take, it's basically all of the things that we try and avoid taking that much time to do. <laughs> he just has that amazing level of patience to sit there and with like a set of needle files, and just be like scrape, scrape, scrape. <laughs> he does it, and he's amazing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a perfect, it's a perfect analogy. I just can't it really
2: get over it. is because like
0: yeah, realistically, it's literally just insurmountable amounts Elbow of patience and time, and yeah. patience. Yeah, like there is literally no magic to it. It's just. Files he swallows the fucking cigarette. That's <laughs> yeah, all that's that's it. It. Files, sandpaper, and stones. And like when it comes to stones, guess fine are like the the high end ones, but you can literally buy polishing stones on eBay for like ten bucks for a pack of twenty. I buy yeah. them all the time for doing my engraving work. Um in various grits. So and then polishing pastes and stuff if you really want to get stupid. Yeah. Um but yeah, so yeah, the, the thing that is, amazes both Alex and I about Wolfgang is not like not what he makes in, in and of itself, although they are amazing. It's the mm. fact that he is just that mental. Yeah, because he puts out maybe one thing
1: every six to eight months at his fastest. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like,
0: he's not, he's not pumping them out. And this is something that Alex and I have said forever. It does not take good tools to make a really good knife. Mm-hmm. Good tools just help you make really good knives faster. <laughs> <laughs> Wolfgang takes great pleasure in making knives slowly. And yeah. that's fine because he can. He charges for it.
1: Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and you make mistakes slower down. when you work that slow as well. Like yeah. uh, one slip on a 2 by 72 it can cost you dozens of hours of work repairing it. One slip yeah, with a file, a <laughs> much easier to recover from that. Yeah. yeah, so
0: yeah, I've <laughs> <laughs> forever now, whenever I see Wolfgang's work, I'm just gonna go, he's fucking swallowing that cigarette. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's it. Dirty bastard. <laughs>
1: oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, thank
0: you for the question, though. That's a good question.
1: Our next uh, question comes from Damien, and he says, hey, hey, quick question about, I guess, oxide layers. I've seen a lot of makers lately adding heat patinas to their Damascus blades to make them colored blue or purple or sometimes mixes of both. My question is, how durable do you think that kind of finish is? I know that on a blade it would only be as durable as the work it gets put through. But what about on something like bolsters or a guard where it would receive lots of rubbing or friction from hands, pockets, or sheaths? Love the show. Keep it up. Damien. It's an interesting question. Thanks, Damien. As
0: a person who has actually done heat patina on hardened steel guards. Um, you
1: did I, that I, uh, on your 48-hour dagger, didn't you?
0: Wasn't it? Uh, no. So I, I did one um, on the Japanese fusion buoy That's that I ended right. up auctioning off. Yes. But I also did it on the guard of the knife that I took to Blade Symposium to show Kyle, which I still yeah. actually own. You blew um, and it, I actually, didn't you? Heat blue it. Yeah, yeah heat blue it. Yeah. Turned it that bright iridescent blue that I really love that we all love watching, um, you know, click spring, make look Mm -hmm. stupidly easy. Mm -hmm. That wanker. Um, but yeah, so so good. (laughs) I hate him. Um, but yeah, so it is not as durable as I would like. It is like, it is semi durable. Like I've carried that around. I dressed out an entire deal with it. I whittled with it and that kind of stuff. It rode around on my hip for a week. Um, and it's been in storage for ages and it's still got blue on it and that kind of stuff that it has rubbed off on the corners. And, uh, there's one area where it rubs against the sheath where it's rubbed off almost entirely. Um, so yeah, it, it is, it's just a surface oxidization. So, you know, realistically, anything that's going to abrade the steel is going to abrade the oxidization eventually as well. And most blades get abraded by literally everything they come into contact
1: with. It's just, we don't notice because the steel's already polished. Mm. So, so when for a-, a, a heat patina is literally just that, like you said, a buildup of oxide layers and it's no different really on a chemical level to what happens with something like cold blue. Um, no. that's just forcing an oxide layer to form as well. Um, the only,
0: the only real difference is that the cold blue also pits the surface slightly in order to oh. adhere that oxide a bit better, which is not done with the
1: <laughs> heat. I wonder if, if there would be a way to be able to do that to achieve a more durable heat patina, if you could chemically pit the surface. That's an interesting thing to, to consider. I wonder if that's possible.
0: I suppose, like, for me, it's always been... I always, like, do the heat bluing too things that are like mirror polished because that's what makes it really stand mm. out but i'm I'm sure that yeah like if you had a pitted a more like uh acid washed finish right like if yeah. you stuck it in some hydrochloric or something like that for a while that it would probably be a little bit more uh durable for sure but if you, um, if you obviously, then went
1: over it with fine steel wool or something to bring back a little bit of luster after acid washing mm. it and you had that
0: yeah yeah and then like of course it comes down to like how you take care of the knife if you're coating it in you know like a renaissance wax or something like that that's adding an extra layer of defense uh against abrasion but for using blade I just don't recommend it because one, it's one thing not to keep in mind is enough.
1: most of the knives that you see that on and they do look cool I, um, one of my past inspirations Shalpina, I used to do it quite a lot with bright purple cracked glass damascus um and things like that <laughs> And they're for showpiece knives, really. It's it's a it's a visually striking thing. It's not the sort of thing you would put on a daily carry and expect it to last. Just like um, highly finished Damascus um, is not something you would expect to last on a you know a daily carry pocket knife, simply because um, the finish would wear over time. Um, but there is a um, a version of it that is deliberately designed for hard-use knives and that is the good old-fashioned stone washing because that is an oxide layer that is put over an entire piece but you pre-scratch it so that as it wears in use it just continues to look the way it was you know originally designed to look um you can't unfortunately do that with something that is highly polished and finished so that's the main difference
0: yeah, um, I'm actually. I actually went and grabbed it out purely because I was interested in having a look. But um, yeah, I'm showing it to style. Alex. It actually, it actually kind of looks color case hardened. If you've ever seen like color case mm. hardened guns, um, that's kind of where it's at now. It's kind of worn off in certain sections. As I think it looks cool, but mm. um, the the real downfall to this kind of finish is that the oxide layer has to be really thin. That's the whole point. That's why it's blue. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the reason that the oxides change colors is because of the thinness. Um, it's it's refracting the light at a different you know angle, so yeah. therefore it's only reflecting certain colors of light. Um. So yeah, it's naturally going to be a relatively thin coat, but on a hardened steel piece, um. Yeah, I'd say it's. I mean, it's durable
1: enough. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Good to use on a I, showpiece. No, I was actually thinking of using it on the bolsters of my pocket knife that I'm working on just to add a little bit of flair. Um, that cause would be Because cool. it's Mosaic Damascus and I'm planning on finishing it quite highly. So um, I, I guess I'll let you know how durable it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You it, it. But, I mean, you guys can't see it, but I can see Sam's webcam and I saw that bolster that he was just showing and it, it still looks great, to be honest.
0: Yeah. No, it looks cool. And, I mean, anyone who's interested
1: can message me and I'll send them a photo of it, but, yeah. You should just do a, for the interest of it, post it to Instagram and explain the story of it. Yeah, I might, I might do that. Yeah, and then, Damien, you can just watch Sam's Instagram. Yeah. Just don't yeah. look
0: too close at the guard fit up because it still gives me nightmares.
1: Do what like 99% of knife makers do <laughs> and angle the photo so you just can't quite see where the heat up happens. Have you noticed yep, that? The, Very yeah. few people actually. Yeah.
0: Well, you either go we, so far forward on all. the blade. <laughs> yeah, either you go so far forward on the blade, like pit point like towards the point that you can't see the fit up properly or you yeah. go so far towards the handle. We You'd do, like, see depth it.
1: of field, so it's, like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. We see you. We see you all. We, we, we know. We know. And then there's people like Kyle Royer and Stuart Smith who don't care. They're fit up so good that they're just, like, no, nah, I'm just showing it straight yeah, up. Here's what? a, a <laughs> close-up. Here's a macro shot. Yeah, here's, here's,
0: here's Josh, Josh Royer with his freaking like, hyper macros just mm-hmm. getting, like, right in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't man. believe I showed this to Kyle. I am actually upset with myself. <laughs> hey man, he, <laughs> g- he gave you a
1: bill of mosaic. You can't yeah, have been too upset. He had no choice. Right. I won it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair and square. Uh, And our final email comes from Mark, and he says, Hello, gentlemen, I watched an older green beetle video recently on him making feathered Damascus, and it got me thinking about starting stock thickness, not the size of the overall billet, but the thickness of each layer." I'm interested in hearing what insights you have on the topic and what thicknesses you prefer. Do you have a favorite? Do you choose a thickness based on the build or what pattern you're looking to achieve? How would thinner stock affect the build versus thicker stock? Thank you. Um, I use whatever's on hand, but um, (laughs) the outermost layers I like to keep if I've got thicker pieces, I've sometimes had access to like one mil about 40, (laughs) uh, but my outer ones, I always leave them at least like three and a half uh, mil thick just to prevent bowing. um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's the,
1: that's the big one
0: is, is rigidity is the, is one of the things that I find more, most important on the outside layers. Um, but also, I have found because I've used anything from like one mil stock um, to six mil, eight mil stock in some of my uh, mm. Damascus, I have found thicker stock to be way easier to forge weld. Um, oh, it can hold thin- Well, it, it holds heat. Yeah, exactly. Um, it holds heat better than thin stock does. It also doesn't have as much surface area, you know, as thin stock does in comparison to the overall uh, size of stock. So you have less likelihood of Random oxides building up really quick because oxides tend to formulate faster or flake off faster when it's cooling. Um, so yeah, I normally like Alex will isolate my thinner stock to the inside of the billet rather than the outside. Um, that also helps with oxidization because the inside of the billet oxidizes much less than the outside does. Mm. Um, but yeah, now these days I don't use anything less than three point uh, two millimeter or one eighth inch um, stock. And I will regularly use six mil stock or a quarter inch stock um, in my in my builds as well. I tend to vary my layer thicknesses as well, so I'll have a little bit of three point two and a little bit of six mil in there just to make it interesting.
1: Doesn't mean I haven't stopped hunting for somebody that will sell me a full size sheet of one mil fifteen and twenty and one mil ten eighty four. I know it's a- it's got to be out there somewhere.
0: I want them, I want them both. I bought a sheet of um of three point two fifteen and twenty recently, or recently a couple of months ago. Mm. Um, that's sitting there waiting to be cut
1: up. Yeah, I, I just want to get that initial uh, layer count higher without having to yeah. get the big bigger forge going. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think I think for that, like all you'd need to do is make sure that you have the billet under compression when you weld it up, and yep. make sure that you do oh, which a bunch should of welds. do anyway,
1: really. Like,
0: yeah, and do a bunch of welds along the sides just
1: to to maintain it. Yeah, or do a sealed billet. Yeah, or that. Yeah, which, you know, frankly, if you've got the time, you should be doing anyway because sealed billets are awesome. Like, yeah, I just, just hate the, the success, idea of having to. The success prep rate on it is is so high,
0: though. <laughs> yeah, I just hate the idea of having to prep 20 separate layers rather than, like, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll normally make 17 layer billets in three and a half or six mil stock. Mm-hmm. A, a, a similar size billet out of one mil stock would be like
1: 50
2: layers.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested because um, I managed to get my hands on uh, some of those Actorox belts, um, mm-hmm. VSM Actorox belts, and I've got to do some um, pretty intense Damascus work for the buoy that I'm going to be building. Um, and one of the worst mm. parts of Damascus making is... A the prep, which you can't use the actuarist belt for really, because they're too aggressive. But when you're doing the clean and stack um, between layers, uh, you know, building up your layer count, the more aggressive a belt you've got to be able to strip <laughs> all of that forge scale and everything, the better. And I'm I'm going to test them hard, like yeah. really. That stacking stacking up layer count in Damascus is some of the most brutal stuff you can do to a grinder belt. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I really am keen to see what those Actrox belts actually do.
0: It's literally the only reason I want a 9-inch grinder in my in my shop is for when I'm doing the restack on Damascus so that I can grind all of that heavy scale off and all the pitting from my press um, I was, because it doesn't come off the press very clean. I, I don't spend the time to make it very clean. I just grind that bastard. <laughs>
1: I was was in one of Niels Vandenberg's live streams and I mentioned that I've got the Actrox belts and he's like, look, Alex, I'm going to warn you now, don't push as hard as you normally do on a 36 grit. (laughs) These things eat steel and they will eat your fingers off. (laughs) Mm. So I'm very keen. I also have a contact wheel coming, so um, I'm keen to combine it with that too, like a rubberized contact wheel and a fresh 36 grit VSM Actrox. It's going to be pretty exciting. I won't have a billet yeah. left. I'll just get too no. carried away. I'll get <laughs> hypnotized. Knife makers don't make mistakes. Just smaller knives. Smaller billets of Damascus.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you are gonna need a pretty sizable billet.
1: Mm. Well, like I said, if my design that I've got in my head doesn't fit with your competition rules, I'm just going to make it alongside your competition. <laughs> Fair so enough. I'll be making it anyway. <laughs>
0: I mean, you got two months, so two knives shouldn't be too hard to I, do. In two I could months. make
1: two, yeah. You never know.
0: So. <laughs> You're only allowed one entry, though.
1: <laughs> no, but like if one of them doesn't yeah, fit, yeah, I, I may be Nine able arms. to make make mine in one month and then make yours in another month. Who knows? Yeah, do it in 48 hours just for the dick swing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so that's all our emails done, which brings us to inspiration time. Yay. who's been inspiring you, Sam? So um,
0: this uh, person has actually been on my inspiration list for a little while. Um, I've followed their work for a long time, and I realized the other—I uh, realized before the show, as I was trying to find their account to make sure that I had the right name down—that um, that, <laughs> that they had unfollowed me from them, which was very annoying. Mm. Um, but uh, they specialize in making hammers and you know uh, axes and various tools um and i just i've always loved their the shapes and the cleanliness of their forgings um they they have done some like damascus work and stuff like that um but one of the (laughs) um one of the the funniest ones that i came across from them a while back that most people will be very familiar with was an anvil on a stick that they did with will stelter um (laughs) For a, you know, it was basically an anvil hammer, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, and the, the maker's name Whimsy. is Ben Snure. Yes, yep. Ben Snure, B E N S N U R E, all one word. And like he just makes some really, really nice, clean blacksmith work. Right, like his tongs, his dividers, his uh, forks, his hammers. Everything just comes out crisp. Recently he did a, a pair of um pair of pliers, like long nose pliers, that I thought were like the slit and drift no no boss pliers because they were so damn clean. Yeah. But they are actually boss <laughs> they are actually bossed pliers and I was like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> um But yeah, no, he's he just he does this insanely clean work
1: and he's I just I wanna so clean too. I know, he's such a he's dapper a young looking. fellow. Yeah. yeah. But I yeah, look no, like he a does tongue kissed to bramble thicket every time I'm <laughs> And he's there like <laughs> looking all poloed and, and collared shirt and jeans and
0: The only thing he's missing is like the white shirt and the, the, the like the black armbands that they used to wear in blacksmith shops back uh, yeah. in like the the he early nineteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, no, like he, he just makes this insanely clean stuff and I'm always I always look at it and go, damn, I need to get better at making stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just, I need I need to be a better maker, damn it. I'm not doing right. But uh yeah, no, I mean if you're not following Ben already, which you know, like you should be, um, he has a very large following, which rightfully so. Horny um, Toad Forge. Horny Toad Forge indeed from Clarendon, Texas. Yeah. Uh Everything's bigger in Texas, including the size of Ben's anvil. Uh, (laughs) He's got a really nice, large German pattern, which I really want. Um, Yeah,
1: his workshop looks amazing.
0: It really does. It's got that beautiful open plan. I love it. I also really like that fork he made out of threaded rod that he managed to maintain the threads on. Looked great. Making forks is such a pain in the ass, and you don't know how much of a pain it is until you do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, I back on the on the anvil on the stick. Like when I looked at it, I understand the principle of forging an anvil, a small anvil like that. But then to do that plus the hammer eye, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, that's so painful. Like, did he do the anvil first? But then it looks too clean to be have done the anvil first. So it's like, did he punch it after he'd forged the anvil shape? But then there's no anvil, like there's no eye suck from the the punch or anything. Ah, too talented. Not allowed.
1: Bad. Did he then, like, balance a piece of hot steel on top of a <laughs> hammer and whack it with that?
0: I mean, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, he's done um, g- jelly roll, Damascus, uh, rounding hammers and stuff that have had copper patinas and stuff. Yeah. It's been, yeah. He does crazy, crazy, crazy things. Maybe we'll get him on the show one day. that will be cool yeah but anyway who's been inspiring you alex Uh,
1: mine is a a metal worker who primarily does sculpture Mm. um but just like what sculpture it is it's incredible um you know how like i don't want i don't want to you know rag on anybody but you know how you go to those like really touristy sort of rural towns, the ones that have just adopted mm-hmm. the touristy nature, and all of them for some reason have inexplicably like a kangaroo or something that's made of nuts and bolts and yep. various metal <laughs> things. And Every time usually, you go to. And they're usually done really badly. Yeah. Um, or sometimes for some reason, inexplicably in the middle of their town square, they'll have the Predator or the Terminator made of nuts and bolts and things. And they're usually, you know, it's cool. Like the first 500 of them you see. Um, put someone's
0: glue gunned them together with a MIG welder in like, you know, a couple of afternoons.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my inspiration this week is somebody who does that sort of thing, but on steroids. Just the detail is immaculate. The the capturing of the essence of the things that she makes like birds bears you know whatever is Lions, so and detailed bears, they? that they look alive you can you can look at them and if you if at a passing glance you would think that it's real even down to little things like frogs and turtles and rabbits and things it's just incredible it's 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 what that form of art you know what the peak of that form of art looks like um and her name's leah jeffrey and on instagram she goes by bruised reed studio so bruised underscore reed underscore studio um her sculptures are just breathtakingly beautiful particularly her birds because i'm i'm a big bird guy i love birds i i mean anyone who's followed me on instagram knows that i never shut up about all the birds in my garden um and mm. they come into my workshop and sing to me and things. I love the birds. She is able to capture the essence of what birds are, their personalities, by making wow. them out of scraps of metal. That is so and, awesome.
0: Like, I'm looking at it now. It's insane.
1: Yeah. it's. Did you see the bear face?
0: Yeah. I Actually, I was taken by the sparrow, the little scrap sparrow.
1: Well, the sparrows are are some of my favorites, and they they are really uh, representative of that capturing of the personality of what sparrows are like. Um, Mm. Most people don't sort of stop and pay attention to sparrows, but they're really funny birds if you actually stop (laughs) and and watch them a lot. Um, And they do have little personalities, and she's perfectly captured them. Um, the way they cock their heads the way they look around the way they sit the way they stand she's she's got it all um, but even little things like uh, there's a frog that she's got climbing a um like a, what do you what do you call those i'm having a mental blank not like a vine.
0: but it's a but, yeah, it's an auger. auger bit,
1: orga that's the word I'm looking for climbing an auger um, and it's all just made of you know bit odd bits of metal all sort of tacked together but in the most artfully beautiful way that it's Mm. just breathtaking the more you look at it the more detail you see and the more like glimpses not just of what the the thing is but what the pieces used to be like she's got a little baby turtle that's sort of looks like it's uh freeze-framed swimming through the ocean and she's left just enough detail to show you that the front flippers used to be the tail end of some silverware like spoons mm. or, or or forks or something. Back in the old day, old days where this silverware used to have like um, uh, chased flowers and vines and things down the handles. Um, and she's she could have worked that detail out in the making process, but she's left it in there in an artful way, and you you get this sort of echo of where it came from. And it's the same. It's carried across in everything that she does. Sometimes it's a little bit of mesh here or a little bit of wire there, and she mixes different metals together. And you'll see um, uh, a feather laying flat across a bird's back. But if you look closely, you realize that it's actually the um, sort of serrated edge of a steak knife that's been (laughs) bent bent over so carefully that um, it, it matches the form of the bird perfectly. It's just exquisite attention and detail from somebody who could only have taken the time to actually really study the not just the appearance but the personality of the subject matter. And uh, I living out in the country like I do, I'm surrounded by nature and you sort of can't help but become accustomed to the little personalities around you and the little idiosyncrasies of the life that surrounds you and to see somebody capturing it in such whimsy and detail is just truly marvelous. Yeah. It's awesome. So, I love it. Yeah. I highly recommend you, you go and give her a follow. Um, so once again, it's bruised underscore read underscore studio. Um, she also has a website in bruisedreadstudio So definitely check her out. Hmm. So with emails and inspirations out of the way that brings us into tool time. No, what's not tool, tool time. We don't do tool time <laughs> what's, anymore. What's t- what's tool time? <laughs> I'm very tired. I'm sorry. But we will slide I'm right sorry. into technique of the week. Technique <laughs> of the week. week. And Technique of the Week is lovingly fertilizing your ear gardens. Thank you to the good-looking fellows at Nordic Edge, suppliers of all things knife-making. All the goodies you'll need on your knife-making adventures can be found at their easy-to-use website, nordicedge.com.au. So give them a visit to stock up today. And Technique of the Week this week, an hour into the show, is some <laughs> set-downs, sometimes called Stepping.
0: Yeah, you gotta you gotta put those tools down occasionally. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so right. Set them down.
1: <laughs> Get the stairmaster going in front of the anvil.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, um, set downs are probably one of the most underrated, but over like the but well used techniques it's in the really uh, a
1: core technique of forging.
0: Yeah, if you can't do set downs properly, then you can't forge properly. <laughs> like mm. basically at the end of the day, it is it, like super necessary for things like bladesmithing, but also in tool making, tongue especially tong making. Yeah. Tong making especially, but like set downs are just such a a cornerstone of hammer work in general and forging in general that you can't move past set downs. And what is a
1: set down, Alex? <laughs> Well, set down is sort of creating a step, if you will. If you, when you're looking at a, a piece of steel, you have uh, an X dimension, so it's width, a Y dimension, its height, and a Z dimension, its length. Well, depends on who you ask. Z dimension <laughs> might be the height, and the Y dimension might be its length. Um, so, what you're doing is you're uh, in the in the simplest form would be if you were to lay bar stock on your anvil, like, say, square bar on your anvil, what you're doing is changing the cross-section at one point so that it has a little step in it. it looks like a mm-hmm. single step. Uh, and you do this by placing the work, while hot, on your anvil, where the uh, literally with the edge of your anvil will be where the step-down is going to occur or the, the set-down, and you're going to strike above it so that half your hammer face is above the anvil, and half of it is off the anvil. Now, you can do set downs on the side of the anvil facing you um, and draw the uh, material away from you, or you can set the uh, down, uh, have the set down happen on the side of the anvil away from you and have the drawing out happen towards you, depending on the need that you have. So it's basically changing the cross section, um, but only from... Uh, one side of the work, because the side that you're striking will be largely unaffected. Um, it'll only come in from one side.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the bit that's smashed between the anvil and the hammer is the only bit that's going to move, basically. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can create set downs using top tools like a set hammer or a uh, mm. you know a top fuller or anything like that, and then removing the rest of the material by you know forging out. But um, yeah, no. A, the amount of times that I've seen people using an Anvil and not using setdowns where it could be incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite, quite actually amazing. And I think it's something that's uh, underutilized.
1: One of the things that uh, I like about setdowns, and I, when I used to teach, and in the background of my videos, because I've left the, um, all the notes uh, on my blackboard in my forge from when I did used to teach, Uh, I have laid out the eight core forging principles uh, and then the eight intermediate forging principles. And in the eight core forging principles, um, step downs are in there because it's such Mm -hmm. a core part of um, being able to forge. But one thing that it does really um, is a requirement to be able to do it well using an anvil is hammer control because Mm -hmm. uh, most beginners you'll see trying to achieve them will be, Uh, They'll miss where they're trying to hit, and they will strike completely over the anvil face or completely off the anvil face. And if you (laughs) strike on the anvil face, all you're doing is drawing. Uh, And if you strike off the anvil face, all you're doing is bending. Um, You need to be literally striking the work dead on half and half between the anvil face and off the animal face, which requires a certain amount of hand-eye coordination, accuracy, muscle memory, and hammer control, which comes from practice. And it's why um, both Sam and I both advocate practicing hammering nails into a stump um, using your forging hammer because it will train you to be able to strike where you want to strike. So if you can't yet strike where you want to strike, your ability to perform set-downs is going to be Sort of hindered to a certain extent. So, Sam's off yeah, looking absolutely. at things in his room. <laughs>
0: absolutely, I mean it's it's one of the reasons why I advocate, and so many people do advocate for making leaves as practice. As much as I hate forging leaves, like I hate it, but um, the only reason for is because it's fiddly and it's it's you know stuff that I don't actually you know like to make. But what it does teach you is set downs. Leaves are, like, 80% set-down. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's why we advocate for practicing with leaves, because you will practice set-downs in great detail. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, like, even as we said earlier, tong-making is, you know, very set-down-oriented set uh, unless you're making some very old-school tiles of tongs.
1: Setting the... Um... Interaction between the boss and the reins is, is, is essential to um, be able to do set downs. Otherwise, you're making sort of offset tongs where a lot of people will sort of cheat and just have the boss curve around into the reins. But if you want to make nice, <laughs> clean looking tongs, um, set downs are essential.
0: So. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I find a lot of people also uh, overlook the, the nature of uh, stock control as much as hammer control is important being able to control the stock that you're working on is incredibly important for set downs as well if your stock is sliding all around the place or as i've seen in many lessons someone will make a set down but then they won't like recenter the stock before they Mm -hmm. do the next hit and so you'll end up with like five set downs in a row Mm -hmm. (laughs) like just just jagged little steps in the in the piece rather than one you know, nice set down.
1: And that actually brings up a very good point. Your first strike when setting up a set down is your most important strike. Uh, It's got to be nice, crisp, clean, and strong because you will use it to uh, with your left hand or your, your non hammer hand, whatever that is um, to pull against or push against the corner of your anvil that you're doing the set down on to actually feel the hook of the piece, mm. and you will use that to realign the step down. So um, it's it's very important you get that first strike right because if there's any ambiguity in that, when you go to by feel, place it back where it needs to be, um, you won't be able to detect that you've got it in the right spot.
0: Yeah, it's also the one time that you can't pussyfoot about with the weight of your blow. Mm-hmm. You need to hit it hard. Like Give it some you can't just tap it in. <laughs> tap it in. Tap tap tap
1: No love taps on that one.
0: No, nah, no. Nah, you got to set that shoulder. That's the one thing that I love uh, loved when I used to teach was that you know I'd, I'd really get them after it. I'd be like, hit it like it just screwed your girlfriend. Come on, <laughs> no, get
1: after it. Hit it like it owes you money. That's it.
2: <laughs> so so yeah, um,
1: yeah. Get out there and practice some set downs um, and a good way to do that is to buy uh make some leaves leaves or some tongs make yeah, some make tongs make my it's tongs for one. me because i hate making tongs
0: and mine send them to me
1: yeah that's i right. mean i so, i
0: hate it less than alex does but
1: <laughs> mind you i i say i hate a lot of things about this this profession i don't know why i'm doing it to be honest uh, <laughs> It's like, hate it's making it's Damascus, like Damascus, hate making tongs, hate making
0: hammers. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we shouldn't be running a podcast
1: about this if we hate everything about it. No, that's why I get so excited when people send me Damascus. It's like, yes, Damascus, I don't have to make. <laughs> tongs, I don't have to make. Oh, it's amazing.
0: Uh, it's a shame that it's not going to be Christmas before the buoy competition.
1: I, I'm sussing any parcels from you. I'm expecting what condiment's <laughs> going to explode out of this one. I know,
0: it was one time,
1: <laughs> and it, wasn't yeah, but it was inside to exp- my house, and it still smells
0: like to- cinnamon in there. It wasn't supposed to explode. You're the one who got out. went after it with a freaking cookery. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't How else expecting are you supposed to-, to open <laughs> I was expecting you to open my carefully wrapped package with a fucking sword. <laughs> you 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 gas you bombed yourself with that one. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so our topic gonna, this week <laughs> this is going to be people who've never heard like that story who've just started listening to the show
1: and go what the mm-hmm. fuck are they talking about. Oh well, you got to listen Context. back for that one. So our topic this week is actually a listener request, um, and that is the design and construction of gas forges. Because we have done an episode in the past on building coal forges or or solid fuel forges, not specifically how they work, but how to build them and the Mm. theories behind building them. So gas forges are um, notably missing from our pantheon of podcast episodes, and uh, we're here to rectify that no matter how painful that sounds. So, mm. <laughs> so um, I'm in the process of building a new gas forge. Sam has just been relining um, his gas forge, and he's even made a giant tempering uh, gas forge, which <laughs> yep, pretty limited much is limited in temperature, but it's the same as a gas forge, really. It's just a gas forge exactly that is very possible. controllable. So. Well,
0: one of the things I find interesting is that so many people mentioned to me how much of a pain in the ass it is to line gas forges. And <clears throat> for me it's like it's it's not the lining that's the problem, it's the the, the damn refractory is just a pain because I have to wear PPE. Mm. But I will take that any day over melting my work in half every 5 minutes. <laughs> It's just, you know, I am an easily distractible blacksmith. I cannot afford to melt all of my stuff in half because I get distracted by something. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So there are certain elements that you have to achieve with a gas forge. Uh, first is the vessel. It needs to be in some sort of a vessel. Uh, even if that vessel is made of your refractory, it, it, it needs to be encapsulated in some way. Um, mm-hmm. There is the refractory itself. Um, there is the burner and there is how it is all mounted. So mm-hmm. to get the easy one out of the way, the mounting system, sometimes you might want to actually just have it sitting on a bench, or some people mm-hmm. have them roller the cart so they can move them around. I have a little tripod stand for mine. Um, how you mount it is going to come down to your shop. Um, one thing I would very much advise, though, which I do see, I would advise against, I should say, because I do see a lot of people do it, don't... Build a system where your gas bottle that is feeding the gas forge is sitting on a rack directly under the (laughs) gas forge. Yeah, I see that a lot. That's bad news. Don't do that because Mm -hmm. LPG is invisible. If a gas leak starts, let's face it, gas forge is allowed and most of us wear hearing protection. You're not going to hear a gas leak from that bottle. Uh, most of us are using those swap-and-go things, and we're just making an assumption that they're checked and are, are safe. They're not always. Yeah. like They're checked by people, and people are fallible. And so you might have a slow gas leak, and all it takes is a, enough of a cloud to build up for it to ignite, flow back to the gas bottle, and that's a bad day. And in fact, I don't actually remember their name. Somebody recently had that happen. Um, Lucas. And his whole shop blew up, and he is lucky to be alive. Yep. And he wasn't being particularly stupid. It's just <laughs> it, ha- it happens to people who are being careful. So yep. don't in- don't tempt fate by mounting your gas bottle on whatever you mount your gas forge to. Keep it away from it. because so, gas, gas gas rises keep it somewhere where the rising gas won't go near the flame of your gas forge. So. Yeah. I
0: mean, like when it, when it comes to gas forges, they're not, they're not as dangerous as people think they are. Like when I got it first built my first gas forge, I was terrified because I had been told all of those horror stories Mm -hmm. of like the, the fire, like shooting back up the line into Mm -hmm. the bottle and causing to explode. What I didn't realize at the time is that that is almost physically impossible. Um, it needs the oxygen. It needs the oxygen, and also the flame goes out faster than the pressure of the gas is pushing. Mm. So, like, unless the, the pressure equalizes between the bottle and the ambient like pressure. And by then, there's gonna... no gas in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, you, you're, you're almost never going to have a bottle explosion like that unless you rupture, rupture the bottle. Um, so as long as you're not like spiking the bottle or shooting it, you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that part of it was scary for me, but then I got over it because I realized it was a physical impossibility. And then it was just a matter of dealing with the gas line and making sure that I don't melt it (laughs) Mm -hmm. because, because then you get a wacky wavy inflatable arm man with a flamethrower. Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'll tell you what, just dropping a quick update here because I realized I never did and I said I was going to. uh, I've been using the Quick Connect gas hose for a couple of years now and it has been flawless, absolutely Mm. flawless, not a single problem. And I had been paranoidly testing that thing for leaks, Um, nothing. Every time I need to swap it between forges or anything, just click it off one, click it onto the other, works fine. So that's, a, that's an I, A plus for me.
0: If I had a bigger gas tank and all that kind of stuff,
1: I definitely would do that. Seeing as I'm still using nine kilos, it just doesn't make sense. I've got multiple forges. So because of that, I move between them for different purposes. So I just yeah. have one gas bottle that I'm on this gas bottle now. And I've got one long hose uh, with the mm-hmm. regulator and everything attached. So if I'm using forge A and then I want to move to forge B, I can just unclick, move it across and click it into the other one and not have to sit there Turn and screw it, little yeah. bolts and things, so uh, but yeah, it works really well, so with your mounting system safely tucked away, the next thing you need is a vessel. Now, I say the vessels are kind of optional because some people just build a gas forge with fire bricks, and they don 't yeah. actually contain it in a vessel, but most of the time it 's going to be in some sort of a vessel, and all the vessel has to do is preferably be made of steel <laughs> steel yeah. is good. Could- it just um, has to
0: contain the <laughs> contain the it refractory holds and not the refractory.
1: burn. That's it, and not yeah, not burn or melt. So a very <laughs> easy go to that people use is gas bottles, uh, empty <laughs> gas bottles. And if you're going to use one, please make sure it is not just empty but fully washed out. Like, I mean, don't just wash it out. Cut
0: it. Start cutting it when it's full of water. Full of water because it can't explode if it's full of water with yeah, no uh, lid like, on it. <laughs> take take the spigot out, you can you can cut the the little like sh- spigot shield off because yeah, you don't cut into helps. the bottle doing that. Yeah. yeah. Then knock your like get your spigot out, like it just takes a, a lot of force and a, and a shifter or a decent spanner. Mm. And then fill that bastard full of water before you start cutting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> just Angle
0: grinders work underwater, so to speak. They do. <laughs> well, I mean you're not you're not going to be soaking the soaking the angle grinder underwater it's just the blade that's going to be getting wet but yeah yeah. save yourself losing all of your eyebrows Mm -hmm. and your facial hair and your hair on top of your head it's not not a
1: pleasant experience to have a gas bottle uh, even residual gas uh, to blow up in your face I, actually, <laughs>
0: Lucas, who I was referring to earlier, wasn't the one that had the bottle blow up. He actually
1: had a bottle blow up on him when he was cutting it open. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, no, yeah. I'm referring to somebody else who lost their entire shop and nearly died yeah, in the process. Yeah, I think, I I think that, was Ameri- that was an That wasn't it? American fella. Yeah, they're doing a GoFundMe yeah. for him. I can't remember his name. No, um, no but yeah, But Lucas he, he is, the is recovering. Oh, but yeah, Luke, Lucas nearly lost his damn face doing that. It's a very unfortunate accident, but
0: um yeah, you, and it you, can you can't lead, lead to fragmentation. It, so... Yeah, we can can lead to fragmentation, so yeah. Don't don't do that.
1: The Please. um my um old uh post box forge was actually made of the um oil tank for a forklift.
0: Mm. Um mine,
1: and mine is uh,
0: mine is an old um uh, air compressor tank, yeah, uh, and and my other one is a helium tank for like yeah. a helium can. Um, so all that has so, to yeah. be
1: is just um, rigid enough that it's not going to melt under the heat. So steel is is preferable. Doesn't have to be like it can be one mil thick wall, like really thin. Um, Sam even made one out of some corrugated iron or something, didn't you?
0: The the ghetto post box, my first one, was literally out of some old sheet steel
1: that was like 0.5 of a mil thick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some corrugated steel. All it has to do is hold the refractory in place, and that's all. Um, So your vessel can be, you can get pretty creative with that, to be honest. And funnily enough, um, sometime in the future, hopefully soon, I am going to be building a miniature post box forge. For yeah, me too. if I'm if I'm doing a run of just folding knives, I firing up an entire full size forge just to heat treat a few folding knives or something or folding knife parts is a ridiculous waste of gas. So I want to do one that's like a paint can size, um, mm. and I want to make a, make my own. I've got a lathe, so I'm going to make a little burner for it. <laughs> <laughs> It should actually be, ben it should be a fun ben
0: project potter, ben potter bladesmith has like a like six post box forges if you go on his mm-hmm. youtube channel and like they're v- the smallest one is like a paint can and it just gets bigger and bigger uh, yeah, as like potter. yeah he hasn't uploaded in years he's a guy who used to work with like mad dwarf workshop and stuff david delegado back in the day but um yeah, he makes some really cool stuff, and also he has these little tiny post box forges and stuff that he uses for making um, daggers and things like
1: that. I always found it fascinating. Very cool. It's something I want to I want to try because I I have got four forges now, mm-hmm. um, and s- some of them are good. Some of them are, are good for one thing. Some of them are good for another thing. Uh, something some of them need relining, and I can't be bothered getting around to it, so I move on to another <laughs> forge and. It, it keeps going. So there are different styles of forge, as Sam has done a brilliant video on postbox forges and he goes into um, floored gas forges as well during that video. But um, mm. basically there's pros and cons to both. The, we're not going to really get into the types of gas forges here, just more <laughs> how to construct them. Um, but the, the simple matter of it is a postbox forge has no floor that the work rests on. Uh, and yep. it's sort of floating in, in air, but that leads to problems if you need to leave it there for a while. Uh, yeah. Whereas a floored forge, the work is resting on the floor, and usually you have hot spotting problems, and um, the heat sucks into the refractory, and it takes longer to get things up to temperature. But you can leave it there and then walk away, mm-hmm. and it'll get up to temperature on its own. So yeah. um, you don't have to weld a handle on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's. De- depending on which style you're going to have is going to depend on what your primary use of the forge is going to be. So um, you can I'd make also, Damascus just fine in a post box forge. It's just, you've got to kind of nurse it because you've got to hold what it on they're a just, stick.
0: That's what they're designed for. Yeah. Um, as long as you make the stick long enough, it'll counterbalance anyway. And <laughs> so that's what I yeah. use mine for like 90% of the time. Yeah. Um, but like the, the big thing is to mention as well is that they don't have to be round. No. Like, um, brick forges. One of the guys I used to work with uh, a bunch of times, Flynn Sharp, who I've done some collaborations with on my channel, his is just a brick, like a fire brick forge, and it's all rectangular because it's brick is together. Yeah, Essential Craftsman has a good video like that as well. Yeah, I've got one that I use for like demonstrations, like roving demonstrations, that's based off the Kelpie Forge, which is literally like eight fire bricks mm-hmm. <laughs> just stacked together to make a small forge. Works perfectly. Um, And it's a great beginner forge. And also the advantage of using fire bricks over ISO wall, and this is something you get into an argument with in blacksmithing communities everywhere, is do you use ISO or do you use fire bricks? (laughs) Fire bricks have the advantage of being easier to replace, uh, easier to repair, and also less hazardous to your health on like making fit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, Isowool is uh, lower density in general. Even low-density fire bricks are higher density than Isowool is. Um, it has a higher refractory like higher refractory level, and also it is uh, moldable to any surface. So you can make round surfaces, which helps with creating vortices in stuff like that, a post-box forge. Yep. Um, the disadvantage of... is what everyone else knows is it's called cancer blanket for a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's because it's a nightmare um but yeah the the the, the pros and cons of those two kind of it depends on what you're building uh if i was to build a forced air forge i think i would go bricks
1: yeah and i mean depending on what sort of temperatures you're expecting to achieve and what size work you're working on is going to dictate what sort of refractory setup you want Um, because if you're doing things where you want to soak big old Damascus billets you want you kind of want a bit of thermal mass there otherwise you're gonna have to just have a burner going like a mile a minute to be able to achieve the temperatures that you need Um, Mm. but if you're going to be if you're doing the sort of thing where you're leaving it going all day because it's like a day's work that you use the forge and then the rest of your stuffs in the finishing shed kind of like me then big thermal mass is good you get the volumes right for the or burner and, and and whatnot and it'll just hold that heat and just ride that wave once you get it up to temperature it's just that it takes a long time to get there but once it's there mm. you're cooking you're cooking for the rest of the day and you can do it at pretty decent psi's too without having to eat through gas whereas if you're doing forging every day and maybe you're only a, like a weekend warrior and you want to go in, turn the forge on, get it cooking in 20 minutes, do your work and then let it cool down quickly. You don't want to have a huge amount of thermal mass. You might want to yeah. have a maybe a bigger burner and less thermal mass. And that way you can, you know, get the temperatures you need and not have to wait around for ages. You'll go through gas faster. But since you're only doing it once or twice a week, it doesn't really um, affect you in that way. So yeah there's no a, that is a, that is a good point there's a pal- and alex alex has taken the
0: route uh, that not many not many makers take is uh doing full castable uh no
1: no I've got my isowall in there um, oh do
0: you I thought you, i thought you were full castable okay oh god no. no I know that I know that alex Steele built one full castable uh-huh. Um, his, his old two burner um, that he uses is full castable floor, full castable roof, and I think he uses fire bricks in the sides. Don't quote me on that, though. I think he might
1: have full castable everywhere. I've got about three inches of uh, iso wall, and then about <laughs> two inches over the top of that with uh, castable.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, ISO is really good for taking up space in a refractory sense. Um, it's not, it's not sturdy at all. If you just have ISO wool with a thin layer of like RTZ, like I normally do, it's terrible. You poke it a little bit with the steel and it'll put a hole in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I should be doing better at lining my forges than I do, but I <laughs> but I'm lazy.
1: <laughs> I lo- I personally like like I said, I do long sessions when I do use the forge. So I have mm. dense castable refractory. It's much heavier, but it's super durable, and you can put an inch or two of that stuff over ISOWall wall, and nothing's getting through that. Um, no. It's it's. You do end up with a forge that weighs about 40 kilos, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, you're not moving it around. No, unless if you're carrying it to shows, maybe design a different forge for that. But um, if you're doing long Damascus sessions and heat treatment sessions of like 18 pieces at a time, then that sort of thermal mass really helps. And plus you don't have to be so panicky about hitting it and knocking it about because dense castable is hard stuff.
0: Yeah, the other the other uh, thing about iso wool, of course, or ka wool, or whatever you want to call it, ceramic fiber blanket is the actual generic term, um, is that if flux touches it, if you've ever seen uh, cotton candy being put in water, with a raccoon <laughs> being really <laughs> yeah, sad, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ever seen fairy floss or cotton candy put in water? That's basically what iso wool
1: looks like when flux touches it mm. uh, at heat. It, yeah. it is it just melts. And flux is not good to uh, light castable either. Um it, no. it, it eats away at that. But dense castable, uh, flux just basically sits on it and pools. <laughs> One Actually, the, it was really the... funny. Um, the bottom of my old post box was so full of it that it was starting to flow into the uh, the pipe <laughs> of the burner. And last yep. time Broden was in the workshop, he he told me afterwards because I haven't been down there with him. He's been he used the, my flux spoon to reach in there <laughs> and scoop out like the molasses consistency flux after <laughs> it had been sitting at forge welding temperatures for like an hour. And he's just scooping yep. out like a cup of. Molten flux out of the bottom of it, and he actually cleared oh. out quite a bit of it. I'm like, Jesus, yeah, right. dude, you're keen. <laughs> if anyone,
0: if anyone's watched the relining video that I did on the the post box forge that I did, there was like an inch thick layer of flux was at a the bottom of my right forge. There. Yeah, there was. <laughs> it was a bottle opener I dropped a couple weeks before in a live stream. <laughs> <laughs> That we went, I, I literally dropped it in there, looked in through the door, and saw it sink like Terminator at the end <laughs> yeah, of like Terminator Jesus Two. up as it, so, yeah, that's it I saw the tail just disappear under the flux, and I was like, "Yeah, no, it's gone. I'm going to yep, get it back get when I back. clean it up Yeah, it's
2: gone.
0: But yeah, so like it, it, you can build up quite a bit of flux in the bottom of a forge quite easily, um, and that's like one of the disadvantages of flawed forges. Like if you're building a flawed forge and you want to do a lot of forge welding that involves flux, I feel sorry for every other project that you ever make in that
1: forge because it is going to be sitting in a puddle of flux. One thing that we uh, we had Tobias um, <clears throat> Hangler on from uh, Apex Ultra, and he was mm. saying that he has a th- plate of like quarter inch. Uh, I think he gave the European designation for it, but I think we worked out that it's 316 stainless.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, 308 or 316 or something like that.
1: And he had about a quarter-inch plate of that in the bottom of his forge. Uh, And then at the end of the the session, he just pulls that out, scrapes it off, sticks it back in again.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I know um, Flynn Sharp, he does a similar thing. Like, whenever he's forge welding with flux, what he'd do is, he's got a little, like, U-channel piece of uh, stainless that he got. Mm-hmm. And he puts that in his forge and it's about the right size of his forge. And that's when he, put, he puts his billet on and he just pulls the whole channel out afterwards. Yeah. I'm just I'm just not that keen. <laughs> and I, I found out something interesting about Eggbreaks Ultra is that Laren Thomas, the guy who wrote Knife Engineering, was actually one of the people who helped design that.
1: Yeah. Didn't you listen to the episode?
0: I haven't listened to the episode yet. Oh, still. it's... i it's, it's, idiot. It's...
1: It's Sam perfection. It's like I know,
0: and I keep I keep wanting to set aside time, but I, every time I think about listening to it, I'm always like busy doing something else and I'm gonna miss something. Yeah. And I'm like, I wanna actually listen to sit down and listen to it, but then I have to put aside like an hour and a half to listen to it. Tobias is
1: a genuinely cool dude, but he's also a metallurgical genius. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, working with Laren Thomas would have been absolutely fascinating. Um, and yeah, helping him I, design I, that steel is uh, and I he get him goes into so detail we... about the, the things that Laren did. And it's, um, yeah, mm. your sort of, what's oh, your wheelhouse?
0: Yeah, I want to get him back on the show just so I have an opportunity
1: to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, so um, when it comes to like forge designs, there are so many variations out there. Uh, it very much depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And almost no blacksmith that I know that uses gas forges only has one.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: most of us have multiple for multiple different reasons like i have uh two that i use regularly i have my postbox forge which is what i would refer to as a medium-sized postbox it's not quite as large as some that i've seen uh it's as large as i would go with a naturally aspirated burner Uh, i would go Mm -hmm. bigger if i had a forced air um and the original don fog postbox design called for a then I have a floored nine kilo bottle forge, which everyone has pretty much when you talk to people. Uh, and that is for my hammers and axes. When I'm making bigger stuff that I don't want to weld a handle to and I have to sit mm-hmm. it on the floor of something, that's what that forge is for. Um, they both run at about the same amount of PSI. They run the same burner now. Uh, I used to run the small burner in the post box. Um, but yeah, they both are basically constructed the same. They're both cylindrical lined with ISO wool with a light coating of RTZ refractory. um, And yeah, one of them has a floor and one of them doesn't technically. Um, But basically functionally, they're the same thing.
1: You're going to get a lot of conflicting arguments when it comes to refractory setups for a forge. Um, Yeah. It's it's when you're like, some people are really into it. Like really, really into it. (laughs) Um, When you're like me and kind of just giggle at those people and you look at it from a bird's eye perspective, you could put five blacksmiths into a room together and come out with eight different refractory setups um, easily. Like people just, they're really picky about it. So you're going to get conflicting information. If you're researching this sort of thing to you know design one yourself you are going to get conflicting information and everybody you speak to is going to speak to you with just like direct confidence that this is this is oh they don't know what they're talking about you need to do it this way (laughs) um what you a really good place to start then i'm not saying this is the best setup i'm not saying this is ideal but a really good place to start would be to get an inch of, uh, for a small forge, an inch of ISO wall with an inch of dense castable over the top of it um, for all of your walls. And the floor, Make it, if you're doing a floored forge, make it a little bit thicker. Um, that's for a small forge. If you're going to make one a little bit bigger, two inches, two inches. And it's a really good sort of baseline to start there and then tweak it based on your own findings. Um, yeah. Like Sam doesn't use dense castable or light castable. He uses like the RTZ coating. Uh, some people will say just use rigidizer on top of the ISO wall. And you guys know our thoughts on that. Um, mm. Some people say fire bricks only. Some people say this type of fire brick. Some people say that type of fire brick. Um, you're going to hear a lot of them. So start with a baseline and work your way up. Even if that baseline is just making one out of fire bricks, uh, watch the video from um, Essential Craftsman. It's a really good, yep. uh, bas- really sort of basic, cheap forge to build. Start with, mm. start with that. And then see, and okay, I'm really struggling to get to forge welding temperatures, so I'm going to modify it to try and reach that. And then you work it around the kind of work that you're doing. If you're just a hobbyist mucking around, that forge that Essential Craftsman does be perfectly fine.
0: The One of the big important things to remember is that um, when you buy a refractory, not all refractory is made equal. That's right. Um, So, if you're going to buy a dense castable refractory or a medium castable refractory, make sure that you ask the supplier what temperature it's rated to because Mm. you will buy a dense castable refractory, which is made for like fireplaces and fire uh, and like um, uh, ovens, pizza ovens and stuff, which is only rated to like 850 degrees Celsius, whereas you're going to be reaching 1200 degrees Celsius in a forge. For what um, it's worth,
1: I only ever get sixteen hundred. I find that it's perfectly yeah. fine. Um for no matter how hard I want to push it, it handles it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like and and pretty much the higher you can get, the better. Right? Yeah. Like it doesn't doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's above like fourteen hundred uh Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit off the top of my head, but a really a high. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like Shirocast, Shirocast and Durocast both come in the 1600 varieties. Um, and At there 2500 are. 2500 Fahrenheit. 2500. Okay. Cool. So yeah, like as long as you're going for that kind of refractory, make sure that you're actually getting that from your suppliers. Because if you just ask for, I need refractory from a refractory supplier, they might send you some, you know, <laughs> pizza oven lining. Um yeah. Quite popular here in Australia is uh, Lanco 156 uh, Fire Mortar, which mm-hmm. is bought from... You can buy it from, like, Bunnings um, in bags or in bo- in buckets. And that stuff is rated to 800 degrees Celsius, at which point it becomes sand. Yeah. Um, and I know that from experience, and it's horrifying because basically the whole floor of your forge becomes just basically vermiculite. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it doesn't melt, but it doesn't do much. Uh, It does melt in a charcoal forge, though. Charcoal forges get hot enough to melt Blanco 156. Charcoal forges get hot enough to melt anything. Pretty much is true. Including the evidence. Yeah. Um, If you can get a hold of it, Satanite is also really good, although
1: very expensive. Very Um, expensive. The last two forges I've made, gas forges, I've used a product called ShiraCast 160AR, and I have found it to be really impressive like the durability it has the ease of setup it's really not finicky in how you mix it when you're setting it up um it's like you i fire it anyway but i mm-hmm. noticed no difference between how it was when i went to fire it after just letting it naturally dry to how it was afterwards no difference mm-hmm. whatsoever uh it's just beautiful and it's durable you can whack it and whack it and whack it and it took 2 years of me and Broden both like <laughs> smacking billets around inside there for it to show signs of wear. It's good stuff, and it's cheap. Yeah, it I'm... was like sixty dollars for a twenty-five kilo bag.
0: I'm I'm definitely looking at buying a bag for myself so that I can realign my forge again another day. I'm not going to mm. do it now, but <laughs> it's, a, it's it's old news now. But yeah, no. um, one Definitely thing I particularly like about it,
1: usually when you are relining a forge and you're mixing it up, it's kind of like a slurry and you've got to sort mm-hmm. of work with gravity to, to to make it work. Whereas Shirocast AR, you can kind of work it dry. Um, mm. And it's like the consistency of peanut butter. So you can sort of smear it onto more or less vertical spaces and it'll stick. Awesome! It's it's yep. just, it's wonderful. More places should stock it, but it's um, sold primarily for pottery kiln making.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, pottery kilns is a good way to go because like ceramics uh, and uh, china, fine china, yeah, are much fired hotter at, than yeah, yeah. They're fired at like 1,200 1, degrees Celsius. They're fired at incredibly high temperatures. So Forge well pottery in temperatures, and that's a hint for you guys. If you're looking for refractory supplies in your local area, I buy all of my refractory supplies from a pottery supply store.
1: I right? get like mine they- from a a tile store. Yeah. Tarmacos. Believe it or not, because they, they do tile grout and stuff like that. And for some reason they sell Shirocast. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I,
0: I literally found my local pottery supply store that like s- sells clay and wheels, pottery wheels and stuff like that. But they also sell everything to build furnaces for pottery. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, check out your local pottery supplies, because I almost guarantee they're actually cheaper than most blacksmith supplies. Oh, because yeah. blacksmith supplies are, are banking on the fact that you are a blacksmith, which is a very uncommon trade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are into pottery. Not as many people are into blacksmithing, although it's becoming a lot more popular, which is great. Mm-hmm.
1: This is thanks why we to, want to include. Thanks to the number we- one blacksmithing podcast on the internet.
0: Yeah, I think (laughs) But like, this is why we want to encourage new blacksmiths, right? We want to encourage more people to join the community Because the more people that join the community The more demand there is for supplies The more demand there is for supplies The lower the price gets And so then we all benefit Mm -hmm. If we all keep being cranky old bastards And telling people to get stuffed when they want to ask questions Then no one benefits Hashtag no gatekeepers.
1: (laughs) Except us. We keep the gate. You all know my eternal crusade against gatekeepers. (laughs) Yes. Uh,
0: But yeah, no. So um, when it comes to building a forge, start simple. Build like a Kelpie style or, you know, like an eight brick forge. Um, It's a really good way to go. Brick forges are really easy. Uh, and they're much less scary to like to do than ice because I understand
1: people being still wear dangerous. a respirator when soaring. It, on yeah. Fire no, no, no. bricks, though. Yeah,
0: they're There's still made of silica. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Silicosis is not fun. Um, but it's better than mesothelioma. <laughs> it's, it's
1: a lot harder to get. It's a lot harder to get than mesothelioma. And they um, can fix silicosis now, but they do have to technically yeah. drown you to do it. So yeah, that's not well. fun.
0: No. Um, not dying is good. Don't die. Rule number one. <laughs> um, that's my rule number one. I know Niels' rule number one is a little bit different, but it's the same principle. <laughs>
1: Don't fuck up. Well, mind you, if you did die, I'm sure Niels would like come to you and be like, you broke rule one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he would. So same spirit, just different wording. Yeah, um, that's right and yeah and then go from there you will you will come across so many different designs of forge and you might design a forge of your own I've seen forges where the burner was wiped in from the bottom Alex Steele's actual old forge at Baker Street for those OG's who remember Alex Steele's original gas forge his burner came in from the bottom and he had a problem when he started making lots of Damascus that the flux was going directly into the fucking burner oh, I don't know <laughs>
1: I don't remember that. I came into Alex Steele's videos late.
0: Yeah, no, like in the, the original old school before he built the new two burner. And actually originally the two burner was a three burner, but then he melted some steel in it with just two burners running and went, Ooh, I might not need the third one. Um That's yeah, he, he originally had a, a forge that had a burner. It was basically just a, a a half um a half circle, like a semicircle of refractory over the top of a gas burner pointing upwards um that was his gas forge (laughs) fair enough i mean it works and i mean if you come from a coal forging principle it makes sense because that's Mm -hmm. basically what a coal forge is yeah right yeah um so it makes sense (laughs) no it really ain't and when you got flux running into it it ain't good (laughs) no um and so yes um but yeah There are many, many different designs of Forge out there, and we couldn't go into them all at this time, but at least it gives you a basic idea of where to start.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, get out there and give it a go. And then maybe once you've got a... Yeah, postbox Forges are so cool. I'm... (laughs) I'm, I'm, (laughs) to be but honest i
0: i am i am so happy that i have converted alex to the I Postbox know, forge cult he doesn't
1: even know how far he's converted me because like i did have uh, like a bottomed forge like you know a gas bottle or bottomed forge um and for my big things but to be honest i salvaged the burner out of it and i put it aside <laughs> if i need to do big things i legit use the coal forge it's just easier yep. like mm-hmm. my coal forge <laughs> Let's face it, my Coal Forge is awesome. Like it's it is. really nice. It's a, I, I am very, very lucky to have a particularly nice Coal Forge and it does a really good job of large items. But it's mm-hmm. a pain in the patoots if you want to do small items. Because yeah. it takes ages to heat up and it takes ages to cool down and yeah, so you can potentially lose stuff in the flames before, and it turns liquid before you get it. That's right. Yeah, so um, but it's nice if you just want a quiet forging day. It's it's mm. really relaxed. It's something about I- the the little crank and whistle of the the, the blower and the crackling of the flames.
0: If it wasn't for the fact that the only like hand crank blower I have is incredibly inefficient, so I have to crank it like a madman to get the flame. Like the fortune well. fire ones, where they give them yeah. one that's got like a two inch handle. <laughs> yeah, not not that bad. Those are like a fishing ter- reel. <laughs> Those are terrible. Those are so yeah. bad. Yeah. But no, mine's not that bad, but it's still not great. Um, if I had a better one, I would so totally want to do another like charcoal mm. forging day. That that being said, a hairdryer is a lot quieter than a gas forge. <laughs> it is. Depends on the hairdryer. Um, <laughs> well I mean this is true. After after running for about six months in a in a forge, it definitely is a little louder than it normally would be.
1: <laughs> I have a eh. massive massive buffalo blower that I'm going to be attaching to a sword um forge, basically mm-hmm. um, that is eventually going to get built because i need to start heat treating swords so but I, I still I need want to a, build a, I need a huge huge volume of air for that thing to work and this mm. buffalo blower is a monster it's the biggest blower i've ever seen in person <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I, I still want to build like a traditional japanese fuego so you know because yeah, they're then, a then workout the tra- to use though yeah well you know so is charcoal in general yeah <laughs> Such a pain in the butt. When I was doing the demonstration at uh, at the hammer in I had recently, it was all coal forges, like actual coal. Mm-hmm. Um I only melted something once. I was very proud of myself because coal mm-hmm. runs a lot hotter than charcoal does. Like it it's so much denser. It's uh-huh. it's a whole different experience. Um but yeah, I was I was man, I hate it. I, I was like, I want to go back to wearing gas, please. <laughs> You've been spoiled now. Yeah, no, it's so much harder when you can't just leave it alone. You've got to, like, watch it. Mm hmm.
1: Stare at it. Well, once you guys go and build your gas forges, you can participate in our Forge Cast challenge that's running at the moment. Just a challenge, just to test yourself. And that is to create a forged socket. Doesn't matter what it's for a spear, a spade, arrowhead. Doesn't matter. But uh, bonus points if it's actually forge welded.
0: Mm and uh, if for those interested, the hashtag Townsbow Build-Off will be being announced at the release of the next episode of the Forgecast. Um, it's the 30th of September, which is only a week away, so um, I will be announcing the details on my YouTube channel. I will have a video out um, so that you guys can get an idea of what's going on, and if you're interested in joining in, make sure that you're subscribed to my new channel, YouTube channel so you see that. Did you see
1: the buoy that Ryan Searles made? I did. Shiny. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah. Very beautiful.
0: He's getting it early for your your competition. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's not allowed to start until (laughs) the 1st of October. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so uh, keep an eye out for that. I am super keen to see uh, what comes from this, this competition. I am so excited mm I'm actually considering participating, not like as an actual entrant, but I want to make a buoy in those two months. So <laughs>
2: um,
0: I will be kind of participating alongside you guys. Hmm. Very cool.
1: So if people have um, blacksmithing or bladesmithing questions, do send them through to us. Slide into our DMs. We're on Facebook and Instagram, or you can email them to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for Sam Samwise, where can they find
0: you? You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on Facebook, YouTube, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble, you know, everywhere except TikTok where I'm under the underscore kitchen underscore sink, which I still haven't uploaded a video to. Um, where can they find you, Alex? Uh,
1: I'm also on TikTok for some reason. They still haven't kicked me off. Uh, <laughs> they keep, keep giving me warnings, but they uh, haven't kicked me off yet. You. Yeah. But I'm uh, also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, where I recently put out a new video that I'm quite proud of. So go check it out if you haven't seen it already. That's um, pretty cool. And I'm also on Patreon. So uh, definitely jump on that if you're keen. Uh, and otherwise, we will see you guys next week for another fresh episode, maybe with a guest. We're trying to work out a time with them. But... Um, We'll do an announcement before that episode because I'm sure a lot of you will be excited that he's back. I um, guarantee exactly it. Is. And we're, we're, we're planning a, a silly little skit for the, page, for the Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned for that. All right. Catch you later, guys.